Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Genesis chapter 1, we're in a series in Genesis, and we're looking at the beginning of all. We're talking about the question of provenance, the question of our origin, where have I come from, where did this all get started? And so I want to begin today by reading Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, before we continue. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. I want to begin with a quote from Augustine that we looked at last week that reminds us of what it is we are studying. In the third century, he stated, because... You have made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. That strikes at the heart of what we're looking at throughout the fall. This longing that we each have to understand our origin. This yearning for the one who satisfies that longing. And this learning that he, in fact, is the one who has created us. This is the question of provenance, discovering our origin in God in order that we might source all of life in him. You see, friends, it is not my aim in this series to increase your intellect, but through hopefully in some way the stretching of your imagination and the increasing of your intellect and even hopefully the swelling of your affections for God that you might not just simply know more about him but that you in your longing to know 
where you have come from, you might come into a saving knowledge of him and experience him more powerfully in your life. So that as the song we sing states, our very bones would sing of God. I love that imagery. Last week, I began looking at at Genesis by stating the doctrine of Scripture and why it's important for us to, to remember and to understand what we believe about the Scriptures. And then we moved into five points on the doctrine of creation. Well, this week I want to begin with a principle of interpretation that remains critically important for us. If you're going to do justice to the Bible and not do injury to understanding it, you must understand some of the basic principles of approaching the Bible to understand it correctly. And so we begin this week with a fundamental principle of interpretation. And here it is clearly stated. A confession of Scripture, about Scripture, knowing that our faithfulness to Scripture depends upon us trusting Scripture in order to interpret Scripture. What do you think the key word of that statement is? Scripture. That's right. Scripture interprets Scripture. This is a foundational principle of interpretation. And we are told in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 11, this is not the only one, but it is the one I want to use for today. By faith, we understand that the world was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. This helps us today to understand how we are approaching Genesis And while we're including many other disciplines in this study, it is simply faith that God gives to us in order to understand his revelation to us. Now, it's also important for us to understand how reliable is the Bible, and more specifically, how reliable is the book of Genesis? We're talking about that throughout this study as well. Well, in his book on Genesis, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross argued that the biblical account of creation parallels precisely the order of formation of the universe as modern astronomers now know it. Here's what he said. Today, thanks to the incredible information explosion of the past few decades, sufficient observational evidence has been gathered and analyzed to enable scientists in various related fields of investigation to agree in every point with Genesis account as it is properly read and understood. These are not my words. As I told you last week, I'm leaning heavily upon those in other fields, specifically of science and math and those fields and disciplines because they are far beyond my own understanding. But in theology, I want to begin with an encouragement to you today, friends. We Christians are on good standing. We're on a rock of understanding, you might say, that is immovable. Our source, God himself, is the only eyewitness who was present when creation came into being. Yes, yes, that is a statement of faith, but it's not one that is any less valid 
than any other statement that can be made about Genesis. I want you to see today that Genesis reveals God as a sovereign creator who created us to glory in us and to set his love on us in Jesus Christ. And as we work through specifically this first chapter of Genesis, we will continue to see the revelation of God from the beginning as our beginning. And so let us move into the days of creation today. And here's what we're going to see. Spoiler alert, they're actual days. I'll explain that in just a moment. Day number one, verses three through five, we see that God creates light. Then it tells us that he separates the light from the darkness and he names them. The light is called day. The dark is called night. He names them and brings distinction and purpose to them, as we will see as well. But it's more than just a a, a light that he has created. For the scriptures tell us throughout the account of Genesis 1 that it becomes day. Now that word day for us has a couple of meanings that we understand it to have as it did in Genesis as well. And those meanings are what? Well, first of all, it refers to a period of light, does it not? God called the light day. And so for us, we go, well, in the daytime, we're referring to the time from sun up or daybreak to dusk, sundown, dark falls, whatever you want to call it. So day can refer to a period of light, but more holistically, it refers to a period of a cycle or pattern of light and dark and the cycle that it creates. So it designates a period of light and of dark as one complete cycle. You see, what we see in the first three verses of Genesis here is that God's work on the first day to bring order was to create what we understand today as time. Time. This is what God is doing. He begins by ordering creation with time. And it is a pattern that will be repeated throughout this chapter, and it is repeated in such a way that helps us to understand not only a day, a 24-hour solar day, but more than just that, we will see a complete cycle of a week as we have come to know it today. Is this God's intent? Well, in fact, it is. Now, last week I told you The first time Genesis would have been heard and read for the children of Israel was they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai before they received the law of God. And listen to what the law says. By the pattern of the text, each day becomes the same in Genesis 1. And God forms this pattern in order to command Man, he sets an example and then he refers to that example in Exodus chapter 20 in the 10 words of the 10 commandments, verses 9 and 11. He says this, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. On day one, God created the day as a 24-hour period of light and day, dark and night, in order to order all 
creation. There was evening and there was morning the first day it records. The second day it records. You see, this verse starts a pattern for us that is critically important. And and I would argue it's difficult for us to fully accept this at times because we live in a day and time today where we think we can operate outside of this pattern. We try to cram 24 plus hours into a day. We want to believe that the night is not as important. We can operate in it as we do in the day. But in fact, what God created for us in the very way that our physical bodies are woven together is to need the light As much as we need the dark. It's not setting it against each other like good and evil as we have often contrived. But it's the greater light and the lesser light. Because there are times of the day when we need the greater light. The wisdom of God says In the morning, man gets up and he goes about his way. He goes to work. He cultivates. He produces. He puts his hand to the things that his life is given to. But when night comes, he lays down. Why? Because the lion gets up to prowl. And so he's ordered creation in such a way to bless us. And it starts a pattern here that's very important for us. Now, what I want us to see here is evidence for why I believe in the position of a young earth creationism. And I believe this evidence substantiates this for us. I believe the position of a young earth creationism is most true to the biblical account. In the attacks and the challenges that have come against Genesis, specifically chapter 1 in creation, many of which we looked at last week, we have to ask, how long were the days of Genesis? Is Genesis a real 24-hour day, or was it something else? Could it have been that God is using the word day as more imagery than actuality? Could the earth possibly only be a few thousand years old instead of the tens of billions that we are now told? Well, let's look first of all at the biblical evidence. The biblical evidence begins by stating that God created six days. We proposed 24 hours in a day, and then he rested on the seventh to complete the cycle of what we now understand to be as a week. The Hebrew word, first and foremost, for the word day here is, as we would understand it, it principally refers to a 24-hour solar day. It surely can mean more than only that, But this is the principal meaning that the author intends by the text here. The second piece of biblical evidence that's important for us to look at is the much larger scope chronologically that identifies these days and validates them as a 24-hour solar day. And that's the genealogical records. If you look at the genealogical records, it is a period of time that substantiates the age of creation. In the late 15, early 1600s, Archbishop James Usher added the genealogical and the chronological records of Scripture together and came to the conclusion that creation occurred around 4004 B.C. That would make it roughly today about a six thousand year old planet 
John MacArthur tells us that there is absolutely nothing whatsoever on the pages of Genesis 1 and 2. And he's speaking from a biblical argument here. Nothing on the pages of Genesis 1 and 2 that allows anything other than a six-day, 24-hour solar day creation. Friends, God set forth a pattern for life and designed it in its regular rhythm to sustain us in this life. Now, last week, we looked at the theory of evolution, and I shared with you my deep affirmation for that theory. Or not. And how it is that modern science has embraced it to use it today. One aspect of the evolutionary theory is based on the age of the earth, which strikes at the heart of this challenge against Genesis 1, multiplying now into the tens of billions of years. Now, let me just interject a bit of a personal observation here. Of course, if you were absolutely convinced something was going to happen, as evolution states in its theory, that there will be a mutation from a lesser to a more advanced to a new species altogether, but that it never happened, what you were absolutely convinced never happened, but because you were so passionately convinced that it would, you continued to add years in hope that it would actually occur, that the evidence would all of a sudden appear where it's never appeared before. Now, you need tens of billions of years in order to do what has never happened because of your passion not because of the science. Evolution is a verdict looking for its evidence. Historically, we know this, that prior to Charles Darwin, any scholar who said the world was more than 6,000-ish years old was considered a fool. But not only should we look at the biblical evidence, let's look at the scientific evidence Let's ask, what is it that science actually tells us about the age of the earth? Does it say something that would actually substantiate what the Bible says? Or does it only validate this other theory? In contrast to what many claim, the fossil record does not prove the biblical account wrong at all. Creation scientists have shown that the flood itself that we will get to in just a few chapters, actually records and addresses scientifically the issues of the fossil record. You see, what science actually proves is far more glorious and far more astounding than anything that evolution claims. The scientific evolution for creation and this specifically a young earth creationism position is validated in a number of disciplines. I want to offer to you one, what I think is just my favorite that I've found so far, evidence of this, from the measurement of the speed of light. One significant and interesting discovery on creation and young earth creationism comes from the study of the speed of light. Now, we know because somebody has said and, and, and no one else argued that the speed of light is roughly just under 300,000 kilometers per second. So they tell me, like 299, something, 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 dot, something, something is the exact. We'll round it up to 300. It's easier. 
A light year is the reference to the measurement of the distance that light travels over a one-year period of time. Thus, if a star came into being a million light years away from the earth, it could it couldn't be observed, excuse me, until those million years had passed because it would have to make its way all the way to the earth. If this is true, it would seem to actually refute the biblical account of creation. Because if the stars were created at the same time that the earth was created, within the same week, that's not enough time for that light to get all the way to the earth and to show itself on the earth. But arguments that the speed of light has been slowing and traveled much more rapidly in the past would seem, at least, to indicate a young universe, one that was measured more in the thousands rather than the tens of billions of years. And friends, research, scientific research, shows that the speed of light has been progressively slowing over time. Let me explain this to you. Barry Setterfield, an Australian scientist and young earth creationist, has done extensive research on the speed of light. In his essay entitled, The Velocity of Light and the Age of the Universe, he proposes the decay of the speed of light evidences a young earth and a shorter time or or younger time of creation. Now, the speed of light was first measured in the late 1600s by a Danish astronomer. It was later measured a second time by an English astronomer in the mid-1700s. But since that time, it has been measured numerable times more. And in those measurements, it has showed that in its slowing, it would slow more quickly between certain years that are recorded. It would plateau a little bit and then slow a little bit more. And, And overall, the speed that has been recorded brings it to what you might consider an equilibrium of the speed that we consider today, 300,000 kilometers per second. And so what Satterfield does is he traces the decay of the velocity of light using the same calculations that have been demonstrated since the late 1600s that they have measured the speed of light by, that we use scientifically to measure the speed of light by today. And he has discovered that 6,000 years ago, light moved at an almost instantaneous speed. I think God's smiling on this one. I just think God's having a good time with us. Setterfield figures by his calculations as he takes the decay of the speed of light and reverse engineers it, charts it on a table that the earth was created about 4,040 B.C., give or take 100 years. I don't know about you, but if we're trying to talk exact numbers here, giving or taking 100 years seems a lot better than give or take 10 million or billion. At the time of creation, friends, the speed of light was going so much faster than it travels now. If, though, if the speed of light has decayed along with everything else that is in decayal since the fall, you might say, then the most basic empirical measurement of the age of our solar system would fit, hear me, precisely into the genealogical chronologies of Genesis. 
Just in case you need a visual imagery on that. Not, you know, conflicting. They're working together. Can you imagine that? Science and math agree with the biblical record. Now that's beautiful, is it not? Based on this assumption being correct, this explains why the dates derived from the various types of radioactive measurements on physical geological elements would all be skewed. The velocity of an electron in its orbit is always proportionate to the speed of light. That means everything changes. And it tells us this, that science and math, even combined, tell us that what appears to be old is in fact not old at all. No matter how passionately someone may be convinced of that. Listen, friends, I've got some deep insight for you this morning. And it's going to come to you in one word. Patina. Martha Stewart nor HGTV did not create it. It is in the divine plan of God. You'll get that later. Or maybe you're not a Martha Stewart HGTV fan. In the end, the length of years that now age the creation, the earth, and continue to grow are elongated to, in some way, to make thought that, that, that what is scientifically impossible might actually occur, especially if we just propagate a period of time that is so intellectually inconceivable that one dare not challenge it. More than the Bible or God as the object that it actually seeks to discredit, evolution itself demands that one completely disregard plain science and math in order to embrace its theory. And friends, that's not my conclusion. I'm leaning on experts in multiple disciplines of scientific and mathematical fields and just recounting to you what I have found in the research and hopefully applying it so we can have understanding based on the confidence of what we know God has revealed to us. Well, that's day one. I would say that that was a pretty good day's work, wouldn't you? I would argue that God was surely worthy of calling it a day. I am trying. You must participate. Day 2, Genesis 1, 6 through 8. It tells us that God created the expanse in the waters and he separates the heavens from the earth. Literally, it describes a stretching out of the distance between the waters for what today we look and see as the sky. This is what's taking place in 6 through 8. The skies have held great interest through the ages for everything from the navigational value that it brings even to those who would create it and set it as an object of worship. But I want us to peer into the skies this morning and what God has done in the stretching out of the heavens and the earth and the separation of the waters and what he has created in this. Again, not just from my words, but let's move again to those who have dedicated their life to the research of it over a number of generations. I was handed an article recently that talked about the Hubble Telescope and how it stared at nothing for a hundred 
hours. This article recounts from uh, uh, in 2015 a story from 1995 when astronomer Bob Williams who was a NASA scientist, wanted to point the Hubble Space Telescope at a patch of sky filled with, guess what, absolutely nothing. That's what he wanted to do. Let's point it and let's hold it there perfectly still and stare at nothing for a hundred hours. Well, obviously his colleagues were up in arms. They said this is an absolutely terrible idea. It's a, a horrendous waste of resources and we're not going to learn anything from it. Nevertheless, he was in a position to have the authority to do that and this is how he proceeded. And here's what the article records, the findings from that hundred hours of staring at nothing. Hubble stared at a patch of sky near the Big Dipper's handle that was only about one-thirtieth as wide as the full moon. In total, the telescope took 342 pictures of the region, each of which was exposed for between 25 and 45 minutes. Starting to sound like a family picture episode to me. The images were processed and combined and then colored and 17 days later released to the public. And here's what resulted from that. A discovery of galaxies yet unknown. Since 1995, this process had been repeated a number of times and each time showing, looking in a different direction, in a different place, showing more and more space that was yet unknown, resulting in what has now become known, first of all, as the Hubble Deep Field from 1995. They did it again in 2004. It became known as the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. We're dealing with scientists here, friends, not artists. Don't expect too much uh, creativity in the titles. In 2012, they did it again, and it became known as the Hubble Extreme Deep Field. Again, let's not be too harsh on them. Commenting on these discoveries, another senior scientist with NASA, Jennifer Wiseman, stated, That gives me and many people pause to be quiet and contemplate this majestic universe we live in and be grateful we have a chance to look at it. But listen to me, friends. God didn't create all that is and all that we have yet to discover just to look at it and to go, wow. But to look at it and say, He is worthy. It's not just to amuse us and amaze us. It's to bring us to a place of worship for the one who gave it to us. Another scientist, Jason Kalarai, goes a step further and he places the Hubble Deep Field in the impressive historical context. Listen to what he says. One of the questions that even the earliest civilizations probably asked themselves was this. What is our place in the universe? I love it when NASA validates my sermon series. You don't have to be a Christian to be asking the question, where did I come from? That's called being alive. Being human, being made in the image of God as we will see and longing for our creator. There have been times, a few times in history, When the prevailing answer to that question has been overthrown, he says, one time was when Galileo turned his telescope to Jupiter and its moons and helped show that not everything revolves around the earth. That was a major, major discovery right there, friends. A second time that he compares it to 
was when the astronomer Edwin Hubble showed in the early 1900s that not every speck of light in the sky belongs to our own galaxy. And then he goes on to say how these observations more recently of finding new galaxies that were yet unknown are on the same level. That's right, friends. Not every speck of light that is beaming through the sky belongs to our galaxy. But friends, no matter how long you stare, you will be infinitely amazed. But you will never see the end of our infinite God. You will not find the end because it is not there. But at the end of the darkness, you can see the God who is the creator of all. And if you will by faith see him, you will see He is here from the beginning. He is the beginning of it all. And this is what is critical for us. Though separated, the dancing forces of the sky and the sea maintain a powerful effect upon the earth as they work in opposing pressure and vacuum. Pushing and pulling the force of the sky manipulates the space on earth as the waters on the earth pull against the pressure in the skies. The currents of the sea and the pressure of the atmospheric uh, nature forms powerful forces that affect the earth in many varied Ways. You see, in God stretching out, He provided an atmosphere of pressure and of vacuum that was that is today unique from any other planet that exists. And the forces are pushing and pulling to provide the perfect environment in order to sustain our life. This is the one who created all all that is. And he has revealed himself that we might see the glory of who he is. That he might set that glory up on us. And pour out his love to us in Jesus Christ. Day 3, verses 9 through 13, it tells us God divides the water with the land in order to uh, to form distinct boundaries upon the earth. And then he goes on to create vegetation and seed-bearing plants and fruit by commanding the earth to sprout forth the seed and, and bearing its produce for provision of its inhabitants. And he places seed within the fruit that is produced. And though it may seem normal to us, of critical importance is that we see in the creation each plant and each tree produces its own seed according to its kind, according to its kind. That'll be replicated in many different ways throughout the scriptures for us to understand and apply. Do you know why seeds grow in the earth? Because God said, grow there. And that's where he placed them, friends. All that is, is because of God's word that he has spoken Do not miss this amazing truth that the place of our habitation provides our sustenance by the word that created and formed and set it into its operational function. God created a place of provision and of prospering on the earth where life could flourish because in that life he will set those who are created in his image to bring him honor and glory in the way they live 
in the world that he has created. Each day of creation faces substantial attacks today from the theory of evolution to the claims about ozone depletion and climate change and its effects upon us to the ice cap melt that when it melts, the waters will rise and destroy the earth. I got a spoiler alert for you this morning, friends. That's already happened and he's promised it will not happen that way again. Genesis reveals God as the sovereign creator who created us to glory in us and to set his love upon us in Jesus Christ. I, I want to conclude today with three critical understandings of our origin in God as creator as we continue to build this doctrine of creation. The first critical understanding I want you to see is that creation is ordered and patterned. We will see this through every day of creation. The order and the pattern in Genesis reveals God, his nature, his character, his being, his will, his purpose, and his intent in creation. Every day begins and ends the same. God speaks, it was so, he looked, and he pronounces that it's good. It's not like God wasn't sure if what he had done was good, but he is saying to us, this is good. He's teaching us. He's revealing to us what is good. The only day he does not record the pronouncement of good was day two. And most theologians think that this is because it was a fixed presence, not one that we would inhabit. And so he fixed it in such a way that was beyond us. and We don't know where the end of that could or could not be. The importance, though, of this order and this pattern is demonstrated in numbers that hold great theological uh, uh, importance in its concept and their themes throughout the scriptures. But they begin here. They're introduced early on. Seven days in creation, the number of perfection. Ten times God said, let there be, it was good, and make. Three times he creates that unique activity of the divine being. And from beginning, God orders creation in his work and he patterns the creation in its operation as its origin and its function for why it exists. But this order in this pattern we see in the second critical understanding that creation's order and pattern gives value, gives designation and meaning to all things. This is the premise of the scientific uh, uh, theory of intelligent design that is being used to unwrap evolution. God's order and pattern in creation makes sense of all that is and all of how it operates. You see, the pattern begins, first of all, with separation, where he brings order and further pattern, specifically as seen in that dual use of day or a period of light and, and dark as a rhythm or a complete cycle. That separation that he provides then leads to definition, where we identify the role and the purpose of creation, the light for the day, the dark for the night, the, the uh, laters will learn, the light for the man to rise and go about his day and the dark for other creatures of the day to do their principal operation. And so he brings definition to that. In that definition, we see assignment where God gives the placement from which the role will be fulfilled in that aspect of creation. And finally, we see the boundaries or the limitations as the earth, the ground swells and comes up and the waters are put into their place. 
everything for its purpose. We see this not only on the earth, but even in space through the gravitational field and the boundaries and the limits that God has set that provide for us all that he has for us. Creation reveals, friends, God's assigned value, his designation and his meaning to all things by his word by which he gives order and pattern. Finally, creation's order and pattern displays the sovereign designer who created for his divine purpose. All of creation points to God as a sovereign creator and the designer of all, both in the macro and the micro, as we have seen. In the micro, the glory of DNA reveals a unique, distinctive identity on every organism in creation. This is the glory and the majesty of the, of the one who is created. He didn't just put a big bunch of mess into order and let it get figured out. But friends, he stamped his divine barcode on every organism within it. And he said, this is mine and this is mine and each and every one is my own. Darwin's theory was only possible in his day because DNA had not yet been discovered. Had it been otherwise, it could have never gained serious traction in science, though surely in the way it's propagated today as a religion, it could, but not as science, because DNA completely refutes what the theory purports. In the macro, it was once believed that the earth was the center of the solar system, and yet we would laugh at that today. Oh, those of old, they just didn't understand. But now today, we know that the sun is the center of the solar system, but we are learning that the sun itself does not sit still. For the sun itself orbits, and in its orbit pulls the entirety of our galaxy with it. Friends, I tell you, there is no limit to the infinite majesty and glory above all. Henry Morris, who's considered an expert theologian on the book of Genesis, says, above all else, Genesis is the foundation of God's revelation as given in the Bible. And what we learn in Genesis is not simply to know, but by understanding and trusting in God's word and what God has done in creation, we come to know and to understand all that is. By faith, friends, by faith, this is the story of providence, our beginning in God. And one of the greatest challenges today is not that we don't understand the world but we have no way to process or interpret the world because we've lost our source. We've disconnected or rejected the one who is our origin. But as we study and as we learn, it's not my desire for us simply to grow our intellect, but to inflame our affections, to strengthen our convictions by faith in the one who is our origin. Let nothing else sway you, friends. God created you to glory in you and to set his love on you. And the only question we need to conclude with today is this. Do you know Jesus Christ, the one in whom his glory and his love is fulfilled in us? Let's pray.